Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pilot's Lounge episode 27. On today's episode, we're diving into part two with Dan Sheehan. So we encourage everybody who has not listened to part one to go back and listen to that prior to this episode. It'll give you a lot more context of his story and where the conversation today goes. On part one, he does share with us his experiences leading into uh, Marine Corps aviation, his deployment with the MU, as well as his initial experiences in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. We left off that episode with asking him how him and his unit prepared to go into a new threat environment where they weren't entirely aware of everything that would or would not be there. We want to thank everybody for participating in Brotalian's Black Friday sale event, but remind you, it's not too late to get that swag for your loved one or yourself before the holidays. Use code TPL at checkout and save 15% off at Brotalian.com. That's code TPL to save 15% at checkout. So from wherever you are listening, sit back, grab your cup of coffee, and thanks again for joining us on the Pilot's Lounge. Tell you exactly what we did for that, and we add to to put a put a, an overall thought on the tactics that we used. The the flot, as you described it, the four line of troops. It was a highway. It was two lanes wide, and that's we didn't take terrain and hold it. So you were over Indian country the entire time. So there was never there was never a secure area that you were flying above. You were always over top of, of potentially enemy spots, enemy territory, and uh, and enemy troops. We flew low and low and fast, and uh, did a whole bunch of jinking and maneuvering uh, because we we knew we had to take it. You know, we knew we had to take a bite of a shit sandwich. It was just a question of how big of a bite were we going to take. So we knew we couldn't accept taking hits from 23 millimeters, um, and you know even a even a 12.7 would be bad, uh, real bad. Um, so we traded that, and we go all right. So we stayed low, put us in our put ourselves straight in the wes for you know RPGs or or 7.62. You know anybody even a pistol could have got us for, from where we were flying, um, but. The threat we could accept a certain amount of small arms fire and still survive. And the, the whiskey did a great job with that. It took more battle damage than I thought it could. Um, we stayed low. We took small arms because if we went high, then we were gonna we were going to enter into the uh, into the radar wes for for radar guided systems or optically guided systems. And like you said, they were they were all over the place, and we didn't know who we were. You know, we we had to assume that we were fighting against a force that was going to stand and uh, stand and, and fight against us. Um, that didn't happen to be the case in a lot of places, um, but the uh, the fact remained that the weapon systems were were still there. I remember multiple engagements where we would be we'd be flying over a, what we thought was an empty field for for an hour talking to the fact and working on something and working on targets, you know, a thousand, 2000 meters away from where we were. And it wasn't until, you know, an hour later that one of us went, Holy shit, we've been flying over top of, of, of a ZPU or ZU 23, you know, nobody's sitting on it. Nobody's manned, but there's one, Oh shit. There's another one There, you know, there would be six or seven triple eight pieces that we never saw. 
that would be right underneath us. There was no, they simply weren't manned was the only reason why we didn't, uh, didn't get shot down. Um, but the, uh, the simple fact was that to fly and fight the way that we did, if the Iraqi army had fought differently, we wouldn't have been able to do that. We would have taken on, on, unsustainable losses. Um, we would have had to have fought a more traditional, in a traditional manner of clearing ground and then pushing ahead and then clearing ground and pushing ahead and clearing ground and pushing ahead. We didn't do that at all during the invasion. The invasion was in Blitzkrieg to get to Baghdad with the intention of cutting off the head of the snake and then everything else would fall. Um, so, like I said, we, we flew for from Kuwait up to the forward line of troops within four days. That was a four-hour flight. And that was four hours of flying. You know, you'd have to refuel. We, we carried two hours of gas, and so you'd have to refuel one of the FARPs. The whole time you're over Indian country, there's no, this area hasn't been cleared. Um, and the, the forward line of troops was, was two tanks wide going north on the highway as fast as they could. Um, so the fighting that we did was, and the, the tactics that we used, um, were adapted to the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground was that the vast majority of the Iraqi army melted away from their weapon systems and we didn't destroy them. You, we didn't have enough. We didn't have enough uh, ordnance and time to sit there and plink away at, at unmanned weapon systems. We we just avoided them when we could see them. But unless somebody climbed on board and tried to engage with us, we didn't engage those those targets. You know, which was a strange thing to think about. But you know, because you're trained, we trained for for years against weapon systems. You train, you see this, you blow it up. You see that, you blow it up. And it became, for OIF-1, it was just seeing it wasn't enough. Now, I remember some, I remember some pilots who kind of got into the, got into the fight a little bit later and they showed up um, and started, you know, basically coming back, claiming after missions going, holy shit, we blew up this, we blew up that, we got this engagement, all sorts of all sorts of uh, big fighting. And we're like, where? And they'd show us on the map. We're like, dude, that shit's unmanned. It's been unmanned for three weeks. You just wasted, you know, six hellfires and, and a whole bunch of, of, of other ordnance on shit that's not in play. So it you had to you had to adjust to the reality on the ground, and that was so that was what we what we did. Um, but against a, against a force that was going to stand and and defend, it would have been a very different fight, and our tactics would have would have had to have shifted significantly in order to uh, in order to, for us to have survived it. You know, it is interesting to hear the perspective from people who were in that initial thing where you guys had a little bit of everything, and you didn't know what was out there. Also, because you didn't, I mean just in terms of technology, 2003 compared to now is very different. Um, and kind of going on what you were saying, just our ability to know whether things are manned, unmanned before you even go out. So, you know, your, your priorities are entirely different on each individual flight, but the reality is we get so pigeonholed into believing that other people don't have the same thing because we have been fighting against an enemy that hasn't had those capabilities. 
Well, now we're back to looking at people who do have those capabilities. So it's, it is definitely, there's so many thoughts running through my head right now and, and a whole plethora of things that I'm not going to get into on this episode or probably on the podcast ever, but, uh, but it's definitely very, uh, it's very eye opening and, and really makes, and I hope it makes a lot of the, you know, a lot of our listeners who are pilots in the branches think about, think about what this next looks like compared to, you know, what you guys were doing in 2003. Uh, but I am interested to kind of, kind of dive, you know, a little bit more into that, uh, because I think for everybody that was part of, uh, you know, that initial push, there were, I think almost everybody that was there took out of it some significant emotional events. It was a significant, it was a, it was an emotional event for everybody I know who was there at that time. And I'm, I'm curious to hear about how that affected you as a pilot and as a person and, and how you took those experiences and moved forward. Um, because I know that everybody I know that was there, it was, uh, not necessarily great memories, uh, from that time frame, but a lot of them didn't leave the military right after that they stayed and they, and they grew from that and they took those experiences and taught others with them. That's a, that's a great point. And it's a, it's a great segue into what I, what I wrote, what, you know, what my books are about, um, in, in the, the, the underlying themes of, of after action and continuing actions, um, come from those experiences, my experiences in Iraq in 2003, and again on the ground in 2004. Um, the uh, so I did two combat tours. Um, the first one in the cockpit during 2003 that we just been talking about. The second one was in 2004. It was my. Uh, it was on the ground as a forward air controller with uh, Marine Corps Special Operations Command uh, Detachment One. Um, and of those two six month deployments, I thought that my ground tour would be the one that I would have the most difficulty, uh, kind of coming back from. I thought that was going to be the one that, uh, that I needed to, if, if anything was going to bother me, I thought it would be from the ground, you know, working as a small team, separate alone, away from, away from help. You know, even when we went out in force, we were only we were generally about 50 strong. Um, and then from that point, we split up and it would be me and and uh, two other Marines on a rooftop in an overwatch position in the middle of the night in Baghdad. And uh, while the, while our guys were cleaning the house underneath. So it was that's what I thought was going to be my biggest challenge. Um, but it wasn't until uh, I left active duty in 2008 um, and started flying as a civilian again that things started, uh, you know, kind of an underlying sense of unease, um, was just kind of permeating my life. And it was, I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't relax. I couldn't kind of be where I, where I thought I should be because I had two good combat tours under my belt. I mean, I'd been able to do everything I was trained to do in the Cobra during the invasion and, you know, with my best friends. And it was like, you know, from a, if it was a Hollywood movie, it was, would have kicked ass. I mean, that was the best engagement that I could have had. It was short. It was, it was intense. And then we moved on and we, we all, uh, you know, and then I was on the ground doing that, which was also amazing. Um, and I came home from both of those deployments without having gotten hit at all. You know, I didn't get wounded. Um, so I was like, I, I must be, I must be golden. I mean, this is, this was awesome. And now I'm ready to move on. And the fact that I couldn't, just move on really bothered me. 
and it it I thought it uh, was kind of a some latent weakness that had been hidden inside me for some time now just now coming out and I was damned if I was going to talk about it I was I was not going to be that guy I was going to shut this down I was going to compress it stuff it away and I was going to push on because I had two combat tours under my belt and I was not done yet I was still doing stuff and there was no you know I, I didn't feel justified in having any experiencing any sort of unease from what I'd done. It wasn't until a couple of years after, after I got out that uh, my younger brother uh, crashed in Afghanistan and he was also a Cobra pilot. Um, and uh, he got in a bad crash and, you know, almost got killed. But my reaction to his crash was a complete separation from reality. Um, I reacted as if he were dead. And I knew he wasn't. And that was I. I knew he was in the hospital recovering, but my what if that news broke through my kind of the facade that I had been maintaining of of I'm fine, and it forced me to really take a look at myself honestly for the first time. Um, and I I turned to writing as a as a means to figure that out, um, and eventually published After Action, um, which is my memoir that time, but. Uh, what I came to realize was bothering me from my combat tours was the killing that I did during OIF-1, during the invasion. It was that transition phase between, first off, of never having killed to killing. Those are That's a big transition point. Secondly, it was a, a, a feeling that some of the guys that we that we that I killed, maybe didn't deserve it. And that's a shitty thing to say, but I really, really wanted everybody that I killed to be aiming a weapon at me. I wanted to see this person shooting at me. And that's not reality. And if you wait for that, then you're you're not doing your job correctly. And there were several engagements that I describe in, uh, in After Action where... Um, all eight of us, all, all everybody in our division were flying around a, or not around, but flying and examining four guys in a fighting hole. And they're, they're not a threat to, to us. There are four guys in a fighting hole. They're, there's nothing nearby them. And we're just looking at them and they're looking at us. And like they, they've got Iraqi, they're Iraqi soldiers. There's no doubt about it. They've got weapons slung. There's AKs all around the, the fighting hole. They're sitting there. Fucking guys are drinking tea and acting like they don't see us. We're loud. You don't hide a cobra, especially over open desert in the Ramallah oil fields. We know they can see us. We know they can hear us. And we know we're supposed to put missiles into this bag, into this. We're supposed to kill them. And we spent... We spent a while talking back and forth on the radio with ourselves going, what are we supposed to do here? You know, or they can't surrender to us. If we were on the ground, then they could, but they can't. So what do we do? And it wasn't until a, a gust of wind blew up a tarp that was, uh, was over one corner of the hole and we could see the, the muzzle of a, uh, of a ZPU uh, or a ZU-23 um, it was a 
I'm sorry, I'm getting confused right now, whether it was a ZPU-4 or ZU-23, I think it was a ZPU-4. Um, and uh, that was it. And we saw that, we're like, well, I'm sorry, that's that's game over. And we killed them all. You know, we put a missile into that, and you, you don't survive a, a Hellfire strike in, your, in the same hole that you're sitting in. And then other other strikes later on, you know, things that you never trained for, you know, you show up and you're you're engaged by troops in one end of a trench line, and then you look 300 meters or, you know, not even that far. You look 50 meters to the left, and there's a white flag. Like, sorry, those fucking guys on, that, on the end of that trench line are shooting at us. The fact that you put up a, a, a flag, I'm sorry. I, I am not flying a sniper rifle here. I've got a 20 millimeter that has a dispersion zone where if I put, if I squeeze the trigger, these rounds are going over about a football field in front of me there. And so it's designed that way for a purpose. And that's, so some of those kills really stayed with me. And it was, it was a, uh, that was what was the underlying unease that I brought home with me. It was different from the ground. It was different on the ground in 2004 because everybody that was fighting in 2004 picked up a weapon and chose to continue fighting. So I, I felt very different about calling in airstrikes on people. And I killed people with my radio on the ground. I felt very different about those kills than I did about, uh, about the ones in, in 2003. Because a lot of those guys were just Iraqi conscripts who were stuck in a hole in the middle of nowhere, just waiting for somebody to, to surrender to. You know, the fact is they didn't get that option. And that's a, uh, that's a bit of reality. That's a reality check for myself from, uh, from what I, you know, my, my Hollywood fantasy of what fighting would be, what war would be between, uh, you know, juxtaposed upon what reality was. And reality is infinitely uglier than, than what you see on the movies. Um, and it wasn't until I started writing about those events that I understood what was bothering me about them and what had come home with me from Iraq. Um, so writing, writing was the tool that, uh, that allowed me to do that. You know, it's interesting that, that you talk about writing and, and you had talked before we started recording, you had mentioned that you listened to the episode uh, that we had done with all the Brotalian ambassadors down in Austin and I believe I, we had talked about that actually. And I think I mentioned that too. I mean, granted I have never been, you know, through anything, uh, quite, you know, specifically like you have. Um, but you know, I think writing, at least for me, uh, when I, when I find my mind was busy and, you know, I kind of talked about it that when something's been bothering me or things like that, how, how big writing can be. And that's awesome that, you know, you were able to utilize, that tool to not only, uh, cope with, you know, the, the mental aspect of what, you know, you had been through and, um, the job that you, that you had to do at that time. Uh, but also too, you were able to do that and share your story, uh, with, with so many other people, uh, just like Justin and, you know, you, you, you're able to share your experiences so that others could learn. Uh, which resonates with us because that's the whole purpose of why we do this, this podcast is trying to bring people on to share their stories so that others, you know, can, it can take something, something from them. And I think, uh, honestly, 
something that we talked about in email before you even you even came on is just the ability to talk about things that bothers you, you know, talk about the things that bother you as a pilot is okay. And I think there was such a large amount of time where it was not seen as being okay. Whether that's, you know, you went and invert an IMC and almost balled up your aircraft or you had engagements that, that really stuck with you and, and really bothered you. The job that we are asked to do, whether it is in combat or shit weather or not great conditions for X, Y, or Z reasons, or maybe your maintenance is, is you know the maintenance in the unit's horrible and you're being put in, in situations that are not great uh, with aircraft that are maybe not maintained to what they should be, those things affect people. And, and me personally, like, I think it's amazing that you were able to share that in such a way that I've affected, you know, that's affected people and people can learn from. And I, I'm sure Justin has some to add on that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for sharing everything, Dan. And uh, thanks for having me on, Nick. I think one of the biggest things that I guess I think bothers me I see it bothering even a lot of the senior pilots uh, in my unit. It's this, if we're on the topic of, of mental health and, uh, um, and just basically like being okay and, and talking about things is this weird cognitive dissonance where we train so hard to go and fight. Um, it's like, especially the H1 community is, is very laser focused on, on close air support and often offensive air support in general. Um, and then potentially, uh, you know, you see a lot of guys going through a lot of, a lot of careers, you know, never, never seeing that. Um, but then also, you know, reading, reading after action, continuing actions, realizing that it's not all, uh, it's not all cool explosions in Hollywood movies. What would you say to maybe not so much myself, but maybe like, you know, I've, I've seen some majors get out with 10, 12 years in, especially the guys that started out in the Zulu, um, that were with squadrons that didn't deploy uh, in the early 2010s. Um, what would you say to those guys that, you know, they, they were, you know, very lethal pilots, you know, a lot of them WTIs and, and of that sort, but obviously never got to shoot at anything uh, in anger, as they like to say, uh, what would you say? What would you say to those guys? So, you know, over, over from, from a, from a wide standpoint, um, you know, honestly, there's, the, you know, yes, the, the, the H1 or the H1 community leans forward towards combat at all times. And, you know, people get out for different reasons. Um, I, and I got out at the, at the 12 year mark. Um, I had made the decision to get out at the 10 year mark, um, but took another set of orders so that I was uh, current in the aircraft. But I would just say, don't get out because you are, get out because there's something else you want to do get out because of that not because you're upset with the marine corps or you know or don't get out with a chip on your shoulder i guess is the is the right way to this is what i'm trying to say um, because that will go away and if you if you get out because there's something else you want to do then get out and do it and go there and carry on move forward but uh, but don't go don't go the other route with that um, not that, not that you're describing folks who are, but the, the reality is that we, for the last 20 years, we've had a, a war going on. And before that, 
you know, we hadn't had a, a Marine Corps-wide combat experience really since, since Vietnam. You know, when, when the entire Marine Corps could just expect you, when you saw somebody, you expected, okay, yeah, you, you've been there, you've been fighting. Um, you know, even, you know, so I, I'm probably stumbling a bit here. The, uh, the basic gist of it is if you're in the H1, if you're in the Marine Corps for one, for one thing, then you are on the pointy end of the spear and you're designed to be that way. And whether there's an active war going on or you're flying around in East Timor on your first float, you are just as engaged in the service of your nation as you would be if you were you're, – you're providing just as valuable a service um, as if you were in, in an active combat zone. Um, so kind of – I guess that's that's what I would say is that yes we no we don't have a a big war that you're going to so you actually have to up your or uh, up your readiness you're not going to fall in on a on an established battle you're not going to fall in on a on an established fob and you're not going to just have somebody who's there already going hey welcome aboard you know, let's swap out the name tags on the on the board, and uh, and just keep going with with the missions we've been doing. You know, you're going to have to, if anything, right now your readiness has to increase because the potential combat zones that you're going into are vastly different, and are going to require you to be much. You've got to be much better prepared across a much wider spectrum of possible missions than anybody's been doing for the last 20 years. You know, like we've been talked about, like we've been talking, it's always been, you're going to the sandbox, you're going to the sandbox. Well, you're not going there anymore. Now you got to figure out some other stuff. And that's not to say that, you know, who knows when the next fight's going to start. But when it does, you've got to be ready. And so... I don't have any, I would say the, the only takeaway that I have for somebody um, in your shoes right now is do something, I'm going to tell you something that my XO told me when I first checked into uh, to Scarface. And he had 15, he was a major, he had 1,500 hours, 1,500 combat free flight hours is what he described it as. And he had never been in, he had never been in battle. And when I checked on board, he said, Daniel, he, he always called us by our full first names. And Daniel, do something every day to prepare yourself for war. And I thought, oh, okay, got it. But it's only in hindsight that I see just how valuable that, that was because what he meant was that you're never going to have a warning. You're in, the, you're in the H1 community. You're on the pointy end of the spear. You're never going to go – you will very unlikely ever be given the opportunity to go – Hey, here's your here's your war. Now go learn all the tactics you're going to need for this particular engagement zone, this particular weapon, this particular enemy. No, you're not going to get that opportunity. You're simply going to be there at the time, and if the chips fall fall where they may, you're going to go. All right, now we have this mission, and it's time to go. And so, you, and you got to be ready. And right now, you don't know where that mission might be and what the what the requirements might be. So all you can do is prepare as widely as possible. The uh, all of that, 
I'm going to shut up in a moment here. All that brings you back to one basic thing, and that is be, be brilliant at the basics. Know your aircraft inside and out. Know what it can do and what it can't do. Know what you can do and what you can't do. Be honest about that, and, and then work to correct the things that you that you can't do but you should. And also, you know, it goes without saying. Know your EPs. Know your know how to fly your aircraft in different environments. But it's no shitter. You got to be. You got to have your your basic com your basic comms in the cockpit down to the point where you can have six radios going off and still be able to uh, talk with the guy in the back seat about the wires that you're about to impact. You know, you've got time now to prepare. You don't, you may prepare for 20 years and never get a chance to use it, but that's a hell of a lot better than not preparing and then finding it yourself with your pants down one day. So all I can tell for, all I can say for guys at this stage, um, you know, in, in 2021, flying H1s, do your jobs, learn them as well as you can, load your aircraft, and study up on your threats. Who knows when it's going to come? But if there's one thing that's for certain, that there's not a whole lot of peace breaking out around the world, so I don't think you have to wait too long. That's yeah. That's something that's awesome. Awesome to hear. Definitely something that uh, I think will resonate around uh, a lot of ready rooms around. And just one one more question. Um, kind of digging into your your FAC experience with Marsoc. Um, obviously, as a FAC, controlling a lot of different assets, uh, not only from the Marine Corps but uh, from the Joint Force. In your opinion, obviously, probably a biased opinion. Um, what? Do what does Roto and Kaz, specifically H1 Roto and Kaz, bring to the fight, bring to the stack that you know you think is just ir irreplaceable um, compared to the rest of the joint force? Reaction the, 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 what, what I think and what I remember from when I had uh, when I had H1s on station for me, it was the, the immediacy of the support, the accuracy, the fact it was kind of like. Oh, it's a good descriptor. I, I mean, it was an extension of me, and it was that. That's probably the best way to describe it. And that's that went across the board for for marine marine aviation, just because of our shared background. I could, I was, yes, I was, I was the one sitting in a in a uh, in a stairwell, you know, controlling the air. But I knew what the I knew what. Uh, you know, Dave Blassingame could see from his Cobra. I knew him. He was my buddy. You know, Slam. He's back behind me in, uh, you know, in a battle position in in uh, um, in uh, Alcoot. And no, it wasn't Alcoot. It was Najaf. And I knew what he was looking at. I knew how to describe what I wanted him to do, and he knew what I was getting at. We had, you know, that that shared that shared experience level, um, and you know, the, the background for that to be seamless. Um, I didn't have to tell him things that I had to tell other, other platforms um, because he just, he knew them and I knew he knew them. So we could just, it was, everything was streamlined. And so from initial, I want rounds to go here to those rounds actually impacting is very quick. And that wasn't all, that wasn't always the case. Um, sometimes it took, you know, a long time to talk, somebody onto a target um 
And by the time you got him there, it was you know, who knew who knows who was still at the end of that uh, at that weapon when it went off. Um, so we gain a lot from just having we gain a lot from knowing the guy on the other end of the radio, the the the, the man or woman in the cockpit who's providing the support. When you know them, it's so much easier to uh, to get them to get the support where you need it. And that's something that, that the Marine Corps does really well by taking pilots out of the cockpit and taking experienced pilots out of the cockpit and putting them out with the ground units. There's no better way to, to integrate um, CAS with, with the ground scheme of maneuver than to do that. And I hope the Marine Corps never gets away from it. Um, if you ever get a chance to do a, to do a fact tour, take it, you know, even, even, you know, there is no shitty fact tour, honestly. Even the guys that I know that were, went to infantry battalions out in out in Twenty Nine Palms loved it. You know, there's a, there's there are better and there are worse, but at any point, if you if you can get a uh, get a fact tour, take it. It's uh, it's it's worth it. Sounds good. Planning on it. All right. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the experience you gained out of that because the army doesn't. The Army doesn't really operate <clears throat> quite like that. And I, I don't know whether that's a, they look at, hey, we spent all this money on you. We want to keep you in the cockpit. We want to keep you doing X, Y, or Z. Um, there are some some specific tracks that may put you with, uh, you know, an infantry brigade or, you know, as a uh, brigade aviation officer or something like that. But I don't necessarily know that, that integration because you were, you know, you were for deployed with them. I don't necessarily know that that exists, but I think that the army kind of uses people's, a lot of people's prior experience to hopefully drive into how they operate in those roles as a pilot. Um, so it's a little different in terms of, of how we draw most of our pilots and kind of what our role is. Uh, but it is, it's always interesting to hear how other branches operate you know, with that, but Justin kind of, um, kind of jumping on what, on what you were talking about and a little bit of what Dan said too, is in, in my opinion, and kind of the focus on, on the way that the army is looking at it is you're right. We're, we're not in a time of everybody, every other year rotating to the sandbox. But I think that that provides a distinct opportunity for us to really step back and get out of a mindset that if we were to jump right into another conflict, we'd probably get us killed as pilots. It's really kind of an insight for me, Dan, specifically on what you said, because there's so much stuff that at the time I'm like, Oh, hindsight, 2020, we're alive. We're here. We made it through that one. You know, good to fight another day. And then, you know, you look at it down the road, you're like, man, that was, uh, that was really sketchy. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or maybe, maybe we should have done X, Y, or Z. Um, which, you know, we've, we've been going for a while now and I don't want to take, you know, too much of your time, but I, I would really like to, you know, kind of ask your looking at where our country is now looking at where our military is now looking at, I mean, you've talked to us, you kind of have a decent idea of, of the mindset of, of how we're training and what we're kind of doing right now. What would your advice be to 
any of us that are currently in, you know, in this position right now, moving forward into that next fight, because we're kind of in that position of where you were when you came into your career, uh, moving towards a fight that you guys didn't really know if it was going to be a coin or a near peer because it had a little bit of everything, you know, what would your, be, what would your advice be going forward? My advice would be to train, train to fight against the near peer, train to fight against the most severe threat that you can imagine. Um, because anything less than that is something that you can flex to. You can't flex the other way. Don't train to go against a coin where you think you, you're going to be flying at, at 3,000 feet and be able to hang out for the entirety of your on-station time, allowing one guy to, to talk your, you on to a single building to drop a missile into it. You can't, you know, anybody could do that. You can fly at 3,000 feet all day long in any sort of conditions, and you'll be okay. Don't don't use that as your as your measuring stick for am i combat ready put yourself against the most difficult threats out there go to that ew range that you're talking about ask to go there ask to go and fly against the most the hardest damn threats that you can get against this is your time to try that shit out and to go you know what this doesn't work the book says do this Every time I do that, I get the kill message pops up. Congrats. You know, we just sent a note to your parents. That's where we need to try. We need to come up with something different. So, all right, now you're in, now you're a senior pilot in your squadron or in your command. And now you're in a position where you can go, you know what? We need to talk about this, about flying against this type of weapon system. If we do it this way, here's my experience. So the more you, so you can learn about it now as a as a junior pilot, and gain your experience as you move up in the ranks and in the in the responsibilities, so that when you get further along and you're in a position to actually make uh, impactful change, then you can do that and you have the knowledge base to do it. So that would be my my main advice right now is that this is the gift of time. If there's no if there's no active war that you're going into, then you have the time to fantasize about going against the nastiest thing out there, train for it, and prepare yourself for it. If it happens next week, then you're you're more ready than if it than if you hadn't thought about it. But recognize that you have opportunities and you do have those training options, but they're not fun. Nobody wants to go out to NTC and, and train, you know, but do it, go there, try it, find those, find those EW threat emitters, go sit in an enemy vehicle, go see what they can see when they're looking at you. You know, the more you know about what these weapon systems can do and what the person on the other end of that weapon system is thinking and seeing, the better you will be able to engage them and and return alive. So, yeah, I guess I do have something to say to folks in in your seats now. It's take advantage of this time, okay? Anybody can, uh, I wouldn't say anybody, but it's way easier to, from an aviation standpoint, to go from near pier down to coin than it is to go the other direction. And, uh, and so set yourself up for success by doing that now train for train for the worst 
threat out there and uh, and you'll be you'll be ready for the lesser ones Dan, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you sharing that so much. I think Justin, uh, I think Justin has some a few things to say. Oh yeah, just uh, it's along that same line. We talked a ton about tactically and how we're going to survive that next fight. But as you've expressed in both your books, uh, after action, continuing actions. Just because you come home in one piece doesn't mean that you're actually you know 100. percent And so looking back on your experience, you know, fighting your demons and what it looks like to be conquering your demons um with those of us that are fortunate to to have the time and to prepare to prepare mentally um what sort of advice would you give to to obviously you know there's no way to be 100 percent ready for it but how how can we kind of arm ourselves up to be ready to you know not only fight the the the, the battle uh out there but also in our heads that's a great question and uh thanks for asking that that's you're exactly right that battles take place on two levels and one's external and that's the the application of lead against against flesh steel against flesh the uh, the other battles are internal and those are the ones that are that stay with you and that uh, take casualties and continue to cause casualties when you come home so prepping yourself for those battles um, can absolutely happen in advance and uh, the more you the more you are able to um, talk to folks who have been through it and who have who have uh, dealt with their own their own battles, uh, their own internal battles. That that sort of information is is gold. Um, not that it will be armor for you, because there is no armor against any of this stuff. It's just knowledge. It's just it's basically re- recon. It's somebody else who's been there first who can turn around and go. Yeah, you know, I can't walk you through that minefield. I can just tell you that if you step right there, it's bad. If you step right there, it's bad. So at least going forward, you know there's two places not to step. There's some mistakes that you don't have to make on your own. You can learn from somebody else who's gone through it ahead of you. And that's kind of the position I find myself in now. I'm the guy on the other end of that minefield who's made it through. And yeah, I, I stumbled here and there. I've, I've had my my challenges um, but I'm on the other side of that minefield and I feel, I feel confident there, but that's not enough for me to get through. I need to turn around and I need to point out the flags to the guys to help them come through too. And that's what I tried to do with my writing. Um, so you mentioned, uh, my books after action and, and continuing actions. Those are honestly, if, if you read those before you ever find yourself in the cockpit, um, or ever find yourself in a, in a combat zone, then you're going to be much better prepared for the challenges of coming home than than I was. Um, that was my intent with writing those books was to was to encapsulate my lessons learned and to fill plug some gaps in my own understanding in my preparation for combat. I was really well prepared for every challenge that I faced in combat. Uh, the Marine Corps did a great job of of prepping me for that, but I was absolutely unprepared and and unarmed against the the challenges that I was going to face coming home uh, because they were never even mentioned. Um, so with that, we, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, compartmentalization and how all of us are, you know, if you're, if you're a pilot of any sort, then you are already a very good compartmental. You're already very capable of compartmentalizing um, your thoughts and your emotions. And you're very, you know, from the first day that you strap on an, an aircraft, you're compartmentalizing. You're not worried about the the speeding ticket you got on the way to the to the airfield. You're not worried about 
you're not going to think about your your significant other and what needs to happen in that relationship. You're going to stay focused on like the aircraft because if you don't, you're not going to come home and you're not going to be able to have that uh, that conversation anyways. So we're really good at compartmentalizing, and the the problem is that we've never been taught or told to expect the, that at some point you have to decompartmentalize. You have to pull that stuff out and allow it. Uh, you have to you have to go back into that room where you locked everything away, and you've got to pull it out at some point in the future. Um, when you do that depends on when it's safe for you to do it, but the external battles, the, the, the lead on flesh, the steel on flesh, those battles, they, and, and really any stressful event in the cockpit, you are still feeling those emotions, those actions, those, those events are still generating the emotions in your, in your mind and in your soul. What you do in the cockpit to compartmentalize them simply tucks them away out of your consciousness and allows you to remain focused on what you have to do to survive at that moment. But never forget that those emotions, as strong as they are, they don't go away. They sit there. And whether you decompartmentalize after that flight and pull those emotions out and let them let them run free reign, or whether you uh, wait for 20 years before before something pushes you to go, oh my God, I need to, I need to think about these events again. And those emotions come out. They're just as strong then as they were the day that you put them away. So that's one of the, that's kind of my main takeaway, I think, from, from my experiences in, in combat and then writing about them afterwards is that compartmentalization is a tourniquet. It can save your life in the moment, keep you from bleeding out. But nobody keeps a tourniquet on for the rest of their life. So use compartmentalization to keep yourself safe, to keep yourself focused, and to get your mission accomplished and get home with your safe, safely with your crew. But at some point, recognize that you are wearing a tourniquet. You are wearing an emotional tourniquet. And if you don't take it off, part of you is going to turn gangrenous, and you're going to fucking suffer. And your family is going to suffer too. So at some point, after after it's safe to do so, you've got to take that tourniquet off. You've got to decompartmentalize. I go through a lot of that in in uh, continuing actions and describe that that requirement and outline some pragmatic suggestions that we can do in our own lives. It, you know, a veteran, a, a person who has been through these sorts of experiences has an awful lot of self-aid that they can do. Problem is we haven't been told we haven't been told what it is. So guys and gals who go through this tighten it down. They they basically form a pressure cooker in their own emotional uh their own emotional um soul. They pressure cook, they tighten this lid down and they just go, I'm gonna ignore this. Well you can't ignore it. It starts to leak out and that eventually that pressure cooker is going to blow. And when it does, it you know could be catastrophic. Could just be a nasty little leak. Either way, it's not good. Um, there's a lot that you can do from uh, from an individual self aid standpoint to help yourself. Um, and I I go through that in, in detail in, in continuing actions. Um, but just, uh, like you've Nick, I know that you guys do a lot with uh, with physical fitness. Um, that's a that's an important aspect to it, and it's a it's a real 
for me personally, um, physical activities were incredibly important for me to help dissipate the, uh, the, the, the physical after effects of my combat tours, um, required physical activity in, in which to, to do that, to dissipate them. Um, and it wasn't until I was able to dissipate those physical reactions that I was able to even even notice the underlying emotional and eventually uh, when I quieted those uh, that unease the the spiritual un unease that had come home with me from Iraq um, so it's there was kind of a, a cascading effect there was no way that I could have done the decompartmentalization that I needed to do and and allow myself to experience the emotions years after the fact um, to help dissipate their their the pressure in my own pressure cooker, there's no way I would have been able to do that if I hadn't been physically active, if I hadn't had the physical outlets that I did, such as spearfishing and freediving. Those are my, I mean, that was where, that was my, that was methadone for the heroin of combat. That was what stepped me down from, from that intense go, go, go feeling um, that I was unable to turn off on my own. So if there's one thing I can leave the listeners with, it's do your job, compartmentalize when you have to, but recognize that you have to decompartmentalize at some point afterwards. Otherwise, you're not going to fully come home. And it doesn't matter if it's combat or just a stressful flight. Those emotions live within you. And if you don't give them voice, they will manifest in ways that you don't like. You know, I really appreciate, uh, I really appreciate you sharing those experiences with us. And I'm sure, you know, Justin uh, does as well uh, as do I, I know our listeners, because like I said, you know, at the very beginning, it, it's that one little piece of information or, or that group of information, usually at the end that just, that sticks with people and that they can relate to and that really can help them and affect them and, and, and move them forward. I am, I am astounded and, and I'm honored to have you as a, you know, as a guest. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your story with our listeners. Well, thank you. Thank you both for, for your flattering comments. And, uh, you know, I, I was lucky to have, to have the experiences that I had and to be able to talk about them on the backside of it. Um, so I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to share that with, with you, Justin and, and your peers, um, you know, you guys are, are moving forward into this, doing things in an aircraft that, that is significantly different than mine. Um, so you're going to be writing your own books and you're going to be uh, blazing your own path forward. Um, so I'm honored to be able to give you even a little bit of guidance um, if that helps as you, as you move forward. So thank you very much for that, for the opportunity to come on and I look forward to doing it again. This is, this has been fun. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, let me know when you got a spot in your schedule. We'll do it. Sounds good. Big shooter, Phil. Fun. Sorry. Awesome. Thanks guys. And, and ladies and gentlemen, Dan Sheehan, check out his books, continuing action and after action or after action, continuing action, I should say in the, in the order that they were, uh, in the order that they were written, you could probably find it wherever you get your books. I'm sure it's on Amazon. I'm sure it's uh, just about anywhere, but please check them out. I know that though I didn't get a chance to read them yet, especially after this episode, I'm going to be going and reading them probably before you have, uh, before we have you back on so that 
I can speak more intelligently and ask you questions about things that were that were in the books. But Dan, she and everybody, 